When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Medieval History, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Yana Byers, your host, and I'm here today with Martha Rampton, Professor Emerita at Pacific University in Oregon, to talk about her new book, Trafficking with Demons, Magic, Ritual, and Gender from Late Antiquity to 1000, out 2021 with Cornell University Press. Hello, Martha, and welcome to the podcast. Hello. Thank you for having me. Ah, it's absolutely. I'm very excited. Um, what a fun book to talk about. So uh, how are you? Are you in Oregon? Is that where we're yes, I am in Oregon. I'm just outside Portland mm-hmm. in a, you know, a suburb called Forest Grove. Ah, brilliant. And uh, how's your day? Is it nice out? Do you have beautiful fall day? We have absolutely beautiful fall days. The weather in Oregon is always about one month off. So while other people are experiencing summer, we're still experiencing lots of rain but by july it clears up and so the uh, compensation is that the falls are absolutely stunning wow wonderful oregon is gorgeous i love it um well it's raining it's always raining i'm in amsterdam that's how i live um yeah it's worth it um all right so the first thing i want to do is kind of situate this book in your you know, intellectual trajectory in your world. And I can see in this project a lot of the strands that run throughout your career, right? Magic and witchcraft, the interest in the early medieval as well as the late, and gender, right? So, all, and all that comes through here. But I'd love to hear you explain how these threads come together for you. So, like, please tell, my, tell us, tell me and the listeners how you came to write this book. All right. Well, this book has been the um, efforts of 25 years. That's how long it took. And of course, uh, that's not all I was doing as a teacher and uh, and the director of the Center for Gender Equity at Pacific University. Of course, there wasn't always as much time for scholarship as I would have liked. And I retired a few years ago to do the scholarship. So what I said to myself is I learned four languages to become a med- medievalist. I'm going to do this. But, um, <clears throat> so it's, it was my the subject of my dissertation. And that came about because I was uh, in early, peri- early years of grad school, and I read in a book by uh, McNamara, by Joanne McNamara, um, a section on the Carolingian world. And she mentioned a woman who had been put in a barrel and thrown in the Sone River. And it's, she said, that's the first witchcraft, uh, you know, execution. And I really wondered about that and what she meant about witchcraft. So that's how this whole thing got started. As you indicated, I've always been interested in gender studies. And ritual is was somewhat a new interest. So all three of those came together. Um, the book is primarily about magic. And there are... Uh, intersections of those other two subjects at various points, but it's magic that absolutely fascinated me. And then I discovered, well, you, I think you were also interested in hagiography, or not hagiography, but historiography. 
Mm-hmm. Should we do that now or do you want to wait on that? Um, no, that, actually, that's that's great. Let's talk about like what this has to offer. Yeah, tell me that's a later question and I'm glad we're doing it now. Tell me what this, what do you think <laughs> that adds to our understanding? Well, I don't know for sure because there have been no reviews of this book. And so I hope to find out from reviews what others think that it adds to our understanding. But from my point of view, I think what's important is this is the the first full length monogram or uh, monograph of magic since 1990 when Valerie Flint wrote an important book about magic in the early Middle Ages. Now, uh, a woman named Bernadette Philotus also wrote a book called Pagan Survivals, Superstitions and Popular Culture. And that certainly deals with magic to a certain degree, but the book isn't about magic per se. So it seemed time for another book. That was part of it. So that's not what motivated me to write the book. But I think um, in terms of my contribution, that is a, that's an important uh, point, is it was time for another book on the subject. Um, also, I think the, the book is distinctive and important in the sense that it brings together three very timely topics, and that's magic, gender, and ritual. So... Um, you know, if you have gender or ritual in a title of books these days, then you're golden. So again, not why the, t- the titles are there, but those are subjects people are very interested in. So that I think is useful. And there really hasn't been much other than articles and, and few of them on women and magic. So the subject is almost always broached in longer studies of magic, but rarely is it really examined. So that's another, I think, a benefit And then um, anthropology is important. And the study of magic beginning sort of in the modern world, the study of magic as we think of it as historians, really begins around 1970. And um, historians at that point went back to anthropology. So they were interested in how magic works out in other cultures around the world. And what they found is that there are some universals about the way people understand magic and and its effect. Um, Before that, before about the 1970s, most of the work done on magic was done by, uh, from a polemic point of view. And, And that's what historians wanted to get away from. So they were saying, let's see how magic works outside of Europe, outside of the influence of Christianity, so we can get a sense of what it is and what it does apart from the church. So that's why um, scholars turned to anthropology in those early years. We don't do that as much now, but um, because of my interest in anthropology, that I think that's where the focus on ritual came. And then finally, I think the book is organized in a way that I think is distinctive. It is topical, thematic, and yet also chronological. Uh- so I understand kind of that historiography. You're absolutely right. Valerie Flint, that's a great work. That's a long time ago. It was time for some new work. And this is a, a very new take. Another thing I think you do that's of notable that we really want to talk about is your use of anthropology and theory. Right? You have a lot of, of like anthropological work on ritual and processes, Victor Turner, et cetera. Um, would you comment on your use of anthropology? That's a very good question. I think my interest in anthropology parallels the interest in ritual. And I think that is because, sort of as I indicated earlier, I want to understand magic and women from a perspective, again, beyond the the church or churches. So obviously contributions by um, you know Catholics and Protestants very early in the historiography of writing about um, magic they're important but I wanted to try to understand what was happening with the people who were practicing magic or the people who were uh, proscribed for practicing magic so what we have in terms of sources is we have only literature written by elite men Nothing else, nothing written by women that were, that were aware of, not this early. There were some women writers in the Middle Ages, but not this early, or at least none that we know of. So um, 
that's why I went to anthropology is to try and find another way in to understanding people. And the challenge with that is trying to make an argument from silence. I mean, you can't make an argument from silence, but one of the ways you can do it is by analogy. So often I would look at some behaviors of people in the period I'm talking about, and I would want to understand those behaviors, and I'd have a hunch about them. But then, as a historian, I'm always, uh, you know, drawn to the sources. So I can't just use anthropology or assume that because particular modes of behavior were at play in one group of people, you know, in the well, I mean, we do work with all kinds of different peoples in Africa and uh, Asia, etc. But I can't assume because um, certain kinds of processes are at work with other cultures that I can necessarily assume that they were at work in the early Middle Ages. But at least it gives an inroad. So you talk about theory, you talk about, you know, anthropology, and then you're driven to the sources for your actual period. So it's kind of a new lens to which to look at this material. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, especially as you define magic, which I want to get to in a minute, like magic and ritual. But like, while we're here, let's talk about sources. Okay. Right? Like our standard, it's, you know, historians. Okay, well, that's cool. But tell me about the text. Right? So that's that's what we do. Um, But so tell me about like what kind of sources you used, because, you know, one of the things, right, is the difficulty. It's it's like you you play the game on a much higher difficulty level as an early medievalist. The sources, there just aren't enough of them. There aren't as many. But you found a lot of really good stuff. So tell us about it. Okay. well, there are virtually no treatises on magic per se. Um, in the medieval period, or well, really not in the uh, late antique period either. Um, Although there's more, you know, magic is written about at more length in those periods. With the exception of one short treatise by a man named uh, Urbanus Maris, a very short treatise specifically on magic. That's in the Carolingian period. It's quite limited and it's quite, uh, most of it's extracted from earlier sources. So because of that, I had to go to all kinds of sources. I mean, almost every source I could think of because there's a little bit said about magic in almost all of them. So I use law codes. And that was very, very beneficial because a lot of law codes prohibit magic. Um, I went to hagiography or the study of of saint saint lives, and of course that's extremely important because in saints' lives uh, the protagonists are often you know struggling with demons, and so I was able to to work with that. And I want to talk more about demons, and perhaps you do too, because they're central to the book. But for now, I'll just mention demons. The Penitentials was a major source. And for your listeners who may not be aware, Penitentials are lists, are books with lists of sins um, and their remediation or their penances. And those were used by priests and bishops, um, you know, to help their flock know how to feel bad about themselves. <laughs> that was me, wasn't it? <laughs> I really, that was me. I really didn't mean that. I'm not a snide person, but it was to help the the flock understand, you know, their behavior and um, how they could, um, uh, how they how they could p- play out penance for various and sundry um, misdeeds. That's what penitentials are: lists of sins and their penances. And then medical text is an important one, and I think you were asking about some of the uh, distinctiveness of the book or the the role it filled in the historiography is, and I think looking at medical texts is really different. And I enjoyed that very much. Now that's the part of the book that I think is going to be most subject to criticism because, um, you know, I don't have a real background in the history of medicine, but I decided to uh, to risk it, uh, because there's so much in herbals, particularly, that are so relevant to magic. So I'm writing another article on that right now. I'm sort of steeped in the whole notion of of herbals and the herbal recipes, and how so often the um, you know the monks mainly who are copying these recipes are recommending procedures, medical procedures that are very much at odds with what other uh, you know particular ecclesiastical elite 
are saying in their writings. So um, this article is called uh, Mixed Messages because in the herbals, all kinds of things about suspensions and using herbs and, and all, uh, you know, formulas, curses even sometimes. But then from the pulpit, those sorts of things are also being condemned. So um, I think that, you know, the focus on med- medicine is interesting. So um, let's see. I've got this written down. Histories, you know, histories that were written at the time. Gregory of Tours, massive history at, at the Merovingian period is one, for instance. Uh, even at literature. So, you know, sometimes poems and uh, that less. Sometimes, particularly in the late antiquity, I use, you know, uh, poems and other kinds of literary writings. For instance, I focus on Medea, the play Medea, um, et cetera. Um, so those are sources. And so so they're massive and the book is massive. And that's why it took 25 years, I think, to write. It's just all kinds of sources because you cannot get at magic, ritual, and women from one source. Sure. You know, and that's the deal. Um, when you're thinking about beginning a study, you know, like the smart money is to go to a source, read it, see what it says to you, and just finish that project, right? That is, that's how you should write a dissertation. Or you can say, I have this big question, and then, then you find yourself looking at dozens of kinds of sources to pull out a sentence or two that speaks you've got to contextualize and so the work you put in here is so clear right you really really went at this and you can see it i mean we you've just discussed this long list of sources but nothing is like here's what magic is right none of these sources are telling you like uh, you have a qu- clear question and they're answering it. You had to kind of come around the backside of a lot of these questions. So uh, really nice work isn't it? like it's historian, like that is good history doing right well, there. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. <laughs> now, you, one has to, and, and this is true, I think of almost all historians, you have to read through the sources sometimes. And it's not exactly what they say. Sometimes it's what they don't say. Um, and like I said, most of them are telling people what not to do. Um, so that's helpful, but it doesn't tell the full story. The full, the full story cannot be told because as you indicated, we just don't have enough sources. Well, and particularly like if we're talking about how you're defining magic and how you're working with with magic overall, the whole story doesn't belong in text. It belongs in lived experience. It's in performance. It's in ritual, right? So you have to come at it using all of these things, which brings me to like this very important question is um, what's magic? What do you mean by magic? And what's its relationship with religion and all of these things? But so what's that? Well, thank you for the question. And my gosh, it's so insightful. I'm obviously talking to another you know, scholar. Okay, so the answer is it's simple and not simple. Uh, and this is, I think, one of the first questions, obviously, that I'm asking myself as I'm starting to write. And that question morphs a little bit over time. But um, let me talk about a few things magic is not. First of all, it's not super, it's not supernatural. It's very much within the natural order, you know, as created by God. And of course, I'm speaking from the point of view of, of the people who lived in the time. Very, very natural. Essentially, everyone believed in it. I'm going to say everyone. It, it was just part of daily life. They weren't always terrified by it, but they understood it was there and they may interact with demons in a particular way. Um, so people weren't terrified about it. But essentially, magic is traffic with demons. And so if you take all the different types of magic and you'll see that the underlying thread is that they rely on demons to do favors for the human beings who are calling them. Now, it's very, very different than magic and witchcraft of the early modern period, as I'm sure you're aware, that in the early modern period, um, there was the, there was Satan, and there was a hierarchical relationship between Satan and other demons. And so the, the demons were sort of the minions of Satan, and then there were witches. This is early modern. And witches were human beings who essentially sold their soul to the devil. That's a real um, broad statement that... I'm I'm using it uh, just for convenience, but they sold their soul to the devil and then they became witches. 
It was something they were. They got the devil's mark. They were part of of Satan's army. But that's not the way it worked in the early Middle Ages. Trafficking with demons was a contract. You did it and you're finished. You don't become something else. You don't become a witch. And in fact, and this is important to my argument, there were no witches in the early Middle Ages, Uh, not in terms of the way they're understood in the uh, early modern period and not the way they're understood in other cultures. So I almost, I think I never use the word witch in that book because something very specific and that concept did not relate. And so, you know, you work with demons, you call them in a variety of ways. It's not a matter of people drawing circles and demons coming to the circle. Generally, you, you draw them in by calling them or by doing some a deed that makes you seem vulnerable. But you, ha- but in order for it to be magic, you have to traffic. You get something, the demon gets something. Now, in our period, in my period, and yours as well, um, there's possession by the by devil, so it's a demon. That is not magic because it's not trafficking. It's violation. So it's interesting that the uh, practitioner in the middle age, in early Middle Ages, has power. It's a deal. You do your part of the deal. The demon does theirs. Of course, what you know the human being is often not aware of is once you start trafficking with demons, it's easier the next time. It's kind of like drugs, right? You you know <laughs> you know sort of the path to perdition. Um, but there's all kinds of different magic. So there's raising storms. There's bringing back the dead um, to tell the future. There's fatuous superstitions like wearing amulets to avert a disease or danger, simple curses, etc. But these never come together to create the concept of witch. They're separate individual types of magic that um and and not everybody would perform every kind and well this is something else uh, interrupt me if you want i'm i'm doing a lot of um so i'm interested in what kinds of magic women performed and it's very specific um it's often domestic which shouldn't be too surprising it's often using poison um it's uh, women use a lot of uh, medical treatments that were considered magical by the elite culture for, for you know, the health of their families. So it's kind of predictable in that women's magic tends to be uh, for the family, the health of the family, for the husband. Love magic is the most common kind of magic that's used by women. And nobody doubts the uh, virility of love magic. It's very, very prominent, very frightening. <clears throat> So, so that's the kinds of things women are doing, and then men are doing other more public kinds of magic. So again, not too surprising that women tend to to be domestic, and the men are more, you know, public based. Um, so let's see. I think let me just get a few more things. I wrote something down. I want to read. If is is very short, I think it will be helpful. It's about this trafficking with demons, because if you traffic with demons. And if the intent and the result is good and positive, like in healing, saving your children, it does not matter. You should not traffic with demons, even if it results in the saving of life. Because if you traffic with demons, in other words, call demons to your assistance, then you, your, your soul will be in peril and you'll suffer you know, more in the afterlife, etc. So simply do not do it. Um, and, and before I read this quotation, another quick note is, you know, I keep talking about demons and not Satan. Satan is one of many demons. Satan is not the boss of the demons. And that's sort of how it works out in the early uh, modern period. Uh, he's the nastiest of demons. And he started the whole thing because it was in the great war in heaven that, um, you know, that that Satan... Um, challenged God and because of his pride he was thrown out of heaven and all the other angels the evil angels with him and so you have all these evil angels and those are the um, demons so Satan is one of many all right so here's a quotation I wanted to read about magic being evil and proscribed etc 
if you traffic with demons, even if the result is good. This is by Caesarius of Arles, a bishop who died in 542. It says, mothers in grief and terror hasten when their sons are troubled with various trials or infirmities, saying, let us sacrifice a garment of the sick person, a girdle that can be seen and measured. Let us offer some magic letters. Let us hang some charms on his neck. Sometimes women who are apparently wise Christians, when their children are sick, they rely on nurses or other um, wise women through whom the devil suggests these practices. So basically he said it's better to lose a child than save the child through magical means. So, um, so that's an important point. I think it's been so long ago you asked the question. I think you're asking one of the, <laughs> the important points of the uh, of the book. I think I've covered a lot of them. Oh, I better say one more because it's sort of a major point. And that is that women had a significant amount of power in late antiquity, Roman period as well, late antiquity, and the early part of the early Middle Ages because of their facility with magic. They were good at it. They were scary. Love magic, birth magic, causing abortions or causing, a, or, you know, helping women to be fertile. In the Carolingian period, and that's the period from about 750 to 1,000, there was a real shakeup of society. Women lost power in, in all ways in the culture. They were sort of relegated to sort of, quote, their place, the home, the, the female monastery, etc. And at that point, the perception that women were effective in wielding magic declined. And so with the decline of women's power, the idea of their power through magic declined as well. Yeah, so that's probably the major point that's really new is, is the one I just explicated. Okay. So when we're talking about kind of defining like magic, where we have this arc. So magic is, <clears throat> it's something you do, right? It's a practice. And then, but this changes in the Carolingian era, right? It becomes like more or less of a, a, a practice that you do to a set of beliefs. And am, am, am I getting that? Yes. Uh, yes. I just want to clarify something on the Carolingians. We're absolutely right about the issue of practice. And again, that's so different than earlier when you become a witch, you just are. In the early Middle Ages, you you practice, and once the the deed is done, so to speak, you're finished. Okay, in the Carolingian period, they simply did not believe in the uh, in the danger of magic the way people had earlier. They still very much believed in magic. They didn't see demons as threatening. Um, it was very much felt that in a thoroughly Christian society, people didn't have to worry much day to day about demons. And so magic still there is still prescribed is still on the books, but it's just not paid as it's not considered as um, formidable. And so in that sense, Women do lose power, not because they're women, but because the anxiety about magic in the culture as a whole significantly declines. Carolingians are worried about other things. Um, I wrote another article. It just came out in the collection, and it's called uh, Why, Why Carolingians Didn't Need Demons. And the Carolingian period is one where there's a lot of focus on sort of um, interiority and person's uh, personal sin and personal obligation that if there's sin, if people are sinning, you know, it's not so much because of the demons, it's because of themselves. So there's, there's that change focus and it's detrimental to women because even though a magic is considered, of course, a very nasty thing, it's still power. It's still power. Still power. And women lose the power in all kinds of ways. So there's like, we can see this kind of concomitant, like, as magic becomes less dangerous, women become less dangerous and women are shoved in their place and demons are shoved in their place at the same well, time. Yeah. <laughs> well, right. yeah, exactly. Okay. So, yeah. And that's, this probably helps to figure out kind of why you ended the book when you did, but let's, let, we'll get there in a minute. Okay. So, um, so we've got, I understand trafficking with demons and this kind of exchange, right? That like there is a, there's a, a transaction that's happening. So then how does, 
what am I to understand about ritual? What's the role here of ritual? Is that what the thing you do in the transaction? Um, yes, that is essentially, that's just the thing you do in, tra- in the transaction. And it's also something that society does at large, which facilitates there being so many demons and the demons being so close and the demons always looking for an inroad. Um, I mean, and what they're doing is, is they're, they want people to sin. But it's interesting because demons have real needs and a personality of their own. They need things as well. And what they really want is they want uh, the, the smoke from the burning of gore. Okay, so that sounds so demony. Of course, that's what they want. Like, of course, that's what they want. <laughs> of course, that's what they want. And so, uh, one of the ways that people really can succumb to magic is if they're cooking meat um, that is in any way uh, dedicated to I don't know forces or people or creatures that are not authorized by the church. So demons love the gore. So if you're if you're burning meat, let's say that's going to be sacrificed to some other cause, demons, you know, they come running to you and, and they they like that gore. So that's what they sort of want. That's what they feed on. Um, you know what? I forgot the rest of your question. Um so so have I. What was it? Oh um Oh, oh ritual, ritual, ritual. And this is something I think is real interesting, and I also think it's a little bit, a little bit new. Is ritual itself was so associated with magic that it is, it is feared by the church and often condemned by the church. So magic and ritual seem to go hand in hand. Um, and so Augustine, you know, the great theologian. Uh, of the late antique period, he's he's very explicit on that. He says even sometimes seeing th- things that don't seem magical, if they're too highly ritual, that's pagan. And so uh, I, I I use the word pagan and magic and demon almost interchangeably because that's the way it was used in that period. So ritual is a real problem for the church, um, but as time goes on in the Carolingian period and uh, um, I guess I'm going to say in the Carolingian period, everything in society gets more articulated, it gets more organized, etc. There's a lot of there's plenty of ritual, you know, church ritual, and then that fear of, of demonic ritual begins to subside. Um, so ritual is it's very frightening. Ritual is scary. You got to be extremely careful with ritual because it may be summoning demons in a way you don't understand. Let me give you a quick example. Uh, wearing amulets or what I call suspensions, very, very common. So people wear these amulets, amulets uh, to keep themselves safe, to um, make sure there's, you know, that they uh, accomplish a journey, and also for healing. And and so Augustine and everybody since him is saying, do not do that. I know you're doing it innocently, but you're trafficking with demons because if you're wearing an amulet to have a safe journey, who's actually providing that safety? Demons are providing that safety. You don't understand that, but demons are providing that safety. They're saying, if you want to be self uh, safe in body and soul, go to the priest, go to the church, do the sign of the cross, etc. So there's this tremendous competition between uh, you know the Christian church and those who would you know, those who would practice magic um, about ritual. A real, a real uh, interesting competition. Hmm. Right. And it seems that there's this idea that they're kind of equally powerful. Then, you know, the church is one set of rituals you can do, and that that's going to the right power. But then there's this other set of ritual that's really dangerous, but really potent, right? But then you totally get it. I mean, that's absolutely right. Absolutely right. And then the Carolingians are certain that their God is superior and the church has taken power. So then ritual loses its right. So that, okay. Yeah. Ritual loses its potency. There's ton of it, but yeah, it's more under the aegis of the church. And that's one of the reasons that um, magic, uh, you know, attended by ritual becomes less threatening. Okay. Great. Um, And we understand demons I'm getting there everywhere and they're really important. Um, and but I mean, it, 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 demons seem to be um, kind of ubiquitous in this way. But then there, there's also 
I'm, I'm, I'm seeing kind of a hangover from um, kind of the older gods. So I, I want to talk about the chapter with my favorite title, chapter six, the screech owl, the vampire, the moon and the woman, which is fabulous. Uh, but we're not, we're not here just because of the great title. I think it's a really nice place to see kind of your larger arguments in play. Uh, the title doesn't hurt though. All right. <laughs> it was so fun making up that title. <laughs> yeah, totally. I can see it. It's my favorite too. I'd say it's my favorite as well. So you talk about Stria and Lamia. All right. Yes. Will you tell us about these? Where, who are they? Where do they come from? What do they mean for us? Well, the Stria is essentially a screech owl and the Lamia is essentially a vampire. And these are constructs and women and <clears throat> deities from the classical era, from Greece and Rome and the uh, and late antiquity. So they were already very much understood by folks in in the Roman world, which will become the early medieval world. Um, and they are as close to witches as you would find. And so often in translations, these folks will become will be called witches. And and I uh, you know I, I stay away from that. I disagree with that because witches is is very different in the way uh, you know most modern readers think about it. So they're evil creatures that do all kinds of nasty things. A lot of love magic. You know they 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 come, they disappear, etc. The lamia is essentially a vampire. Um, the, it, the Lamy will suck the blood of particularly men. Um, and again, that's for the sake of love magic. So to get substances from men, semen, blood, you know, particularly can be used by these demons. Okay, Stria and Lamia are another kind of demons. They can be used by these demons for a variety of nefarious ends. They're less, you find a lot of Stria and Lamia in the in late antiquity, a lot of that, where they're in books, uh, you know, people are afraid of them, they're in histories, uh, the, in the law codes, in fact. It's pretty interesting in the Merovingian law codes. And the Merovingian period goes from about 500 to about 700, 750. Um, and in that period, people are really afraid of these Stria and Lamia. And in the law, law codes, there's all kinds of regulations against uh, calling a woman a Stria. Or if a woman eats a man from the inside, okay, she's accused of being a stria. So they prey on men particularly. And there's a sexuality about them as well. And that in some ways is the most frightening aspect of them. They excite uh, sexual desire in men. And it's kind of like the succubi, um, that we don't have much in this period, but they come to men in the night and they have illicit intercourse with men. So I think that's the most interesting thing about them is they are female and they are a particular threat to everyone, but especially male uh, virility. Sure. And uh, using... Go ahead. I'm sorry. Okay. The belief in Stria and Lamia really drops off in the Carolingian period because a belief in magic does... But, you know, they're still worried about them. Mm, okay. Um, and they have this, like, particularly, you know, the idea that women are going to lure men, right? It's this idea that women are dangerous, in, they're sexually dangerous. They happen to have this affinity to very powerful private magic. So this this all suits. And then is there a kind of tie-in then with Greek and Roman goddesses? Yeah, very much so. So the uh, the Greek and Roman goddesses, the, of course, this is according to, to Christians, Christ, uh, Christianity, elite Christians. Um, Greek and Roman goddesses are nothing more than demons, absolutely equivalent. And so pagans were actually worshiping demons. And that's one of the reasons, of course, paganism is frightening and proscribed um, and prohibited, absolutely prohibited. Um, and often that's often also often the reason that magic just means pagan or magic just means demon. Not always, but they're they're sort of connected. Okay, so all of these uh, Roman uh, and Greek gods and goddesses are 
are you know verboten to deal with them in any way. Now, in terms of women particularly, there's the goddess Diana, and she runs throughout the book. In interesting ways, the goddess Diana was the most lasting of the pagan deities in early medieval writing. She's omnipresent. And, and, you know, Diana is, of course, the goddess of the moon. And there is a sexual nature to that, but not so much, not as much as you would think. And so goddess would, the goddess Diana would lead women across the night sky and they would fly. And it wasn't even so much that they were out there doing wrong things, but they were leaving their husband's beds. So the notion was that women would, I guess, awake at night or not even awake so much, but their spirits would leave their bodies while their husbands are thinking they're lying beside them. And they'd go out with what we call the wild horde led by the goddess Diana. And it's so interesting to me because there's, uh, in terms of gender, in terms of women, it's just not, it's not just the fear that women can practice kind, the kinds of magic that will be detrimental to men, but the very notion of control is at issue here. Women shall not leave the beds of their husbands, even in spirit form, and go off, you know, on a spree, essentially, a spree of flying women with the goddess Diana going, uh, flying across the moon. So the moon, Luna, of course, is feminine, um, grammatically feminine in Latin. Um, the goddess of the moon was always considered extremely powerful. The moon is female. The moon is female. Um, and so when activities are timed to the moon, that has a lot to do with women's independence, autonomy, etc. So it's it's about much more. This business with Diana and the moon, the goddess Diana, it's about much more than magic. It's about control or fear. I don't even like the word, word control particularly. Control comes into it. I think the word fear and dread come into it more. Men are, you know, are, are fearful and dread the power of, of women who, you know, leave their beds at night again, again. They do other kind of nasty things sometimes when they're, you know, out there flying around. They, they fight um, with other kinds of beings, etc. But I think those are the important things to note about right. Diana, particularly. Uh, yeah, and and this idea of like women kind of running amok with their exactly. their dangerous powers, we don't fully understand. Absolutely, and- yeah, and they're contrary to the church. Yeah, they're they're a little mysterious. If I can bring up one more goddess, that's Minerva, and um, she is the goddess of, of um, weaving. Not particularly in the classical period, but um, the goddess of weaving. It's all kinds of things that women can do while they are uh, weaving. And women, of course, are responsible for cloth making. And these aren't slaves or anything like that. These are women. They go, they go, go to their kind of a cabin, like a big, uh, a big, almost factory where they weave cloth. And men were always afraid that they're weaving spells, particularly love spells. And that is a consistent through this period, is that women are weaving and they're dedicating themselves to the goddess Minerva. So it's that kind of thing that, and of course, because it's a goddess, it's really a demon. And so this is one of the ways that the demons help women, help human beings, is um, you, you weave a spell, you dedicate it to the goddess Minerva, and then, you know, the man will, will fall in love with you, your husband will fall in love with you, something like that. And there's a lot of, you know, stop me if you want to, but there's a lot of really wild stuff that goes on with women and love magic. So, for instance, one of the things that women can do in order to excite love in their, you know, generally we're talking about spouse, um, is put menstrual blood in his food. So you make a cake with the menstrual blood. Um, you, you get some of his semen and you can use it in particular ways to lure him in. So men were terrified of blood magic, more than women. Of course, we're not sure, right? Because we don't have sources written by women. Maybe they were just as terrified. But but love magic was manipulated by two primary classes, women and priests, which is... Interesting. Priests were were very much guilty of performing magic, especially when they would recommend that people who are sick use amulets. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Huh. Interesting. You know, the um, feeding your husband or your lover or whomever, um, that is something I've seen in 17th, 16th and 17th century cases as well. Like, Oh, yeah. That yeah. persists, doesn't it? 
Yeah, that persists for a very long time. Um, and do you and- think it has to do fundamentally with this men's fear of women or not understanding women or fear of their own sexuality? I mean, I think it must, right? Right. I mean, that's that makes so much sense. And then this idea, you know, as as we as you get institutional power that kind of takes over, then women, like individual women, are less dangerous. Sure. Okay. So, um, which is kind of like my one of my last questions I have for you is: you choose to end the book around the year one thousand. You know, the title says to one thousand, um, and I, there I, we've talked about a lot of the changes that have happened in the Carolingian era that makes that make sense. Is there anything else that I need to know, and like why you chose uh, to end around the year one thousand? Sure. The year 1000 is kind of a watershed in European history, although um, recently historians have wanted to back off from saying, you know, there's a dramatic difference. Um, you know, all historical periods blend into into one into another. So we want to be a little bit careful about making statements that seemed as though the world had changed fundamentally. But there were a lot of changes in the world at that point. Um, it was a period of the Gregorian um I was going to say revolution. It's not that at all. But um, what what is it? It's the investiture controversy. And so, yeah, there's a lot of um, changes in the way the church approaches things. They're already less interested in magic than they have been for a long time. But I think you said it best when you said institutional changes. Um, And so a lot of this stuff about magic, it seemed a little irrelevant at that point in the thousand and like Carolingian period um, to other kinds of issues that were coming up issues around particularly heresy. So heresy is the closest thing to magic beginning in the, not in the, you know, um, middle ages proper, the high middle ages. And it's because people were traveling more and particularly because of the crusades. So people would go to the crusades and not just men, you know, women as well. And, that, you know, they'd learn about other kinds of uh, religions or other takes on Christianity. And then they would come back to Europe and they would spread these different ideas about Christianity. And that was much more a concern of the church and the state as well than, you know, these sort of magic spells and stuff that women did, etc. So that's an, that's an important change. Um, cities begin to develop. You know, people move uh, off the manors, et cetera. Um, serfdom actually is developed. Serfdom really isn't, an, it's very loose up until about a thousand. So again, I'm going to repeat what I said before. That's a repetition of what you said, is I think the way to best describe it is institutional changes that drove behavioral changes and then ideologies. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, in some level, and some, I mean, 1000 is a good time, right? And that's, we also, we work with periodization. That makes sense if we're talking about the early Middle Ages. But there's a lot of things that are going on that just means that the the magic is just not as scary anymore. Yes, that's right. And that's what the Carolingians did. Um, at least not this kind of magic, not, not trafficking with demons. Yeah, yeah, not trafficking with demons. And everybody still believed that and was still proscribed, absolutely. Um, and then that will return, as you know, in the later Middle Ages and the early modern period to be more frightening and threatening than ever. But for the Carolingians, um, Satan and, again, his minions were pretty well under control. They had to be kept at bay, but they really weren't able to um, exert the power over human beings that was thought they could do earlier. That's what the church did. And so too strong a belief in magic and demons was in some ways an insult to God and to the church, who basically had that handled. At least that was the thought. So, so that's part of the reason that um, magic, in some ways, took a back backseat to the major concerns of, of people around a thousand. And I just want to throw in again: it's not that they stopped believing in it or condemning it. It just wasn't first on people's minds. They're just bigger fish to fry. Bigger fish to fry. And it never was really first on people's minds. I mean, I, I misspoke. Magic was just there. It needed to be controlled. But in the Carolingian period, that seemed like a fairly minor issue. 
All right. So I've taken up tons of your time. So I'm just going to ask one last question before I let you go, which is a completely new thing. So what's next? You said you're writing a couple, you're writing a piece right now, but you've retired uh, very young, by the way, very early retirement. You have retired to spend some time on your research. What are you going to work on next? Well, I'm so excited about this. Um, Probably the rest of my life, everything I do will be informed by my study of magic to some extent. So what I'm interested in now is I'm interested in women and their access to violence. Yeah. In fact, well, I better not mention that. I'm working on becoming a series editor on a series that will invite, you know, submissions around this. But what I'm particularly interested in is in these war cultures and because women couldn't fight, the way they, the way to express or, or to accomplish their will in the world had to be different. And so, of course, magic is part of that. Um, and so it's bigger than that, but women were powerful. And just because they couldn't go to war doesn't mean they weren't forces to be reckoned with in society. And I haven't you know, gone very far in this book. And so I am going to talk about their facility with magic, but I'd like to get into these other things that both you and I found quite interesting. Is women's way of... Um, I like to say just imposing their will in the world. I don't like the words control very much. I, just, I don't think that's very descriptive. But the way the women's got what they needed and thought for themselves, and again, impose their will on the world, had to be secretive, had to be often magical. But there's other things as well. I want to talk about other kinds of things. Um, so that's next. The thing I'm working on right now, I've done a lot of papers on aspects of magic from the book that I'm going into in more detail. So I'm finishing that paper up on um, on med- medical magic, and then I hope I can turn to my book. Excellent. That sounds so fun. I'm really excited about that project. Wow. All right. So listeners, once again, this has been a very lively conversation about uh, Martha Rampton's 2021 Cornell University press release, Trafficking with Demons, Magic, Ritual, and Gender from Late Antiquity to 1000. Um, There's a lot in this book we didn't get to talk about, uh, but I I hope that what you did here is convinced you to go check it out and read it. It's a really wonderful book. It's delightful. It's fun to read. It's really interesting. Um, And I think you could tell from this conversation, you want to spend some more time with Martha Rampton's voice. Uh, (laughs) Thank you, Yana. You're so kind. (laughs) So absolutely. Thanks so much for your time, Martha. It was my pleasure chatting with you.